So the first question, I mean, I think that um, this is not really a, a class on apologetics, uh, but it really, we have to interface with the fact that lots of people aren't Christians, lots of people don't believe in Christianity. They have to say, like, well, why is that uh, the way things are? Uh, and I think we have to, you know, start out right off the bat saying, you know, God is invisible, uh, so why do we believe in God? Uh, you know, it's um, something that is difficult in a way because we are very tangible people. You know, we, we like to have concrete things, and God is, um, in his fullness at least, intrinsically not accessible to us, not visible. So then you can say, like, well, why does anybody uh, believe in God at all? Um, so I'm going to start with some really basic results of philosophy that actually are pretty non-controversial in philosophical circles, even like non-Christian secular philosophical circles. Um, and the first thing is just the point, and I have to write here because this is uh, great, okay, um, something that you may or may never have thought about before. Um, but there must be something eternal. Uh, and so let me see if I can move this. I'll move this over here. I'll stand over here. Okay. Um, and that basically comes from, you know, all the, even the, the greatest seculars, philosophers, pagans like, you know, Plato and so on. Um, Really, you could say it rests on the fundamental principle that you can't get something from nothing. That nothing, by definition, is nothing. And nothing can do nothing. Uh, and you can also get really um, uh, basic and say, um, nothing cannot exist. Okay? You could never have a state of affairs in which there was nothing. Okay? Now, because to exist, by definition, is to be something. Okay, so so son is a mathematician, right? And some of this is like related to foundation of mathematics, right? Like you 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 literally to exist by definition means to be something, and so you can never have a state of affairs in which there is nothing. Right. Yeah. So there is always something, and because. This is true at any point in time. That means there has never been nothing, okay? Which is where we get the idea that something can't come from nothing, okay? So if there never was nothing, okay, then you can't get nothing generating something because there never was nothing, right? <laughs> okay. So it's it's a little bit of wordplay, but it's actually very crucial to say that we. There always, in every system of thought, there is something that is eternal. And so really, the debate, so something can't come from nothing, I'll put that here. Oops. So in, in one sense, you could say, the first principle is simply that every worldview has something which is eternal. Now, the debate, then, is what is the nature of that eternal thing? What is the eternal thing like? Because you can't have a thought system in which there's nothing eternal. 
There are always something eternal. And so the debate between the atheist and the Christian, or between the Buddhist and the Christian, is over what is that eternal thing like? Is it like us? Is it like people? Or is it like a machine? Uh, or is it like uh, a plant? Uh, or, or, you know, some, some other thing like that? Uh, but you can't put nothing in that slot. Go ahead, Dan. Yeah, it's just like we are saying. Okay, so this is the thing. Okay, so everybody in every system has something that's always existed. And so we're really just debating about what is it that's always existed. And so you mentioned some people might say, well, the physical universe has always existed. Right? That, that the, the stuff of the laws of nature has always existed. Okay, so one option. And other native cultures as well, as you know, they see the things around them and it could be Right, right. So we might have stuff, like something like a machine that exists for eternity. Or we can have something I'll call it like the Star Wars Force, or sometimes people will call it sort of spirit. Um, and both of these are fundamentally impersonal. Like if you think about like the Star Wars movies with the Force, which is basically, the movie is basically a Buddhist worldview. Um, uh, is the idea that there's sort of this impersonal force. It's very much like a machine. And so the atheist would say sort of physical stuff. And the Buddhist would say it is sort of some spiritual stuff. But there's sort of fundamentally an agreement that it's more like a machine than it is like a person. That the stuff that's really basic is impersonal and, and not like us. Uh, and so you know, the fundamental question is then, uh, is this ground of all beings, I'm going to call this eternal, uh, sometimes philosophers will solve this ground of all being, okay. which like I said, has to be something, whatever it is, there's something that is at the base of everything. Um, the question then is, what is it like? And I would say the fundamental question of debate between all different world religions uh, and philosophies like atheism is, is that like us or is it unlike us? Are we basically accidental? Are we basically just sort of coincidence? And the universe at its fundament is basically just a machine churning away uh, and we just happen to be an accident thrown up by this machine? Or is there something actually fundamental that's like us about the way the whole universe is and always has been? Um, so, the next point, uh, I would say, we're still sort of on the basic philosophy, uh, is then can the, can the um, lesser generate the greater? Okay, so, so from a Christian perspective, of course, we would say God is the ground of all being. Uh, and that he is fundamentally like us, and that he has personality, and he has relationship, 
he has intentionality, he plans things to do, and so on. Uh, and so we would say the ground of all being is just like us in that way. Um, and so I'm going to use the word God a lot, <laughs> you know, at this point. <coughs> One of the things I think that is really crucial in thinking about this is um, to sort of say what we're talking about is God as the ground of all being and then the created universe as something which he is outside and which he created. Okay, And I think it's actually a very fundamental issue because actually a lot of atheists and a lot of people have the completely reverse. They have the idea of a physical universe which is eternal and God as something like a Thor or a great spaghetti monster or something flying around inside this universe. Uh, and that he's just sort of like us, or maybe like you know one of these deities of Greeks and so on, and that he is subject to rules of how things work. Uh, but in the Christian view, we're saying that the ground of all being is God, and the rules are the rules that he himself made. <clears throat> and I think that's actually a crucial difference in how you think about the world. Because I think it's very natural for us to say, well, because we think of God as like us, we think of him as like us being constrained by natural laws. Uh, and so he, you know, has to do stuff similar to the way we do. What we're saying is God is like us in some ways, but he's very unlike us in other ways. Okay? And he's unlike us in the sense that he is after the sovereign over the universe, that he is outside it, he is the eternal one. <clears throat> so what you can say, what are ways in which God is like us? Maybe you can help me fill in this table here. I'll put one down, which is just intentionality. I think this one is a really crucial thing because machines have no intentions. Okay, machines just churn away, and uh, mathematical systems just are what they are. They don't think, how can I be a better mathematical system tomorrow? Uh, or how can I make some beautiful creation? They just are what they are, right? So if you think about principles or natural laws or you know, what fill in the blank, those are all impersonal and have no intention. What are some other ways you uh, would say maybe God in the Christian worldview would be like us? What's that? Creativity. Creativity, yeah. To think of something new. I have one here, I'm not sure uh -huh. Spontaneity. Spontaneity. Can God be spontaneous? Well, okay. Um, I kind of put that under creativity. Um, spontaneity. I'm not sure I'm going to spell that right. Um, I would say. Oh, slaughtered that there. Okay. Um, so for humans, when we think of spontaneity, we almost think of like randomness as though. Um, something just popped in my mind. So I would say that God is not random. But I think there's an aspect of spontaneity that you're getting at, which is kind of related to creativity, which is that there can be something that wasn't there, and then he says, let's do this. And there's something new. Right. right? Even though the let's do this, though, I'm understanding, I'm just thinking about it, can come from a collection of memories and experiences. Yeah. 
Yeah, actually, when we're spontaneous, it never really comes truly out of the vacuum. Right. It's usually we put together some things on our background, and we said, hey, let's put these two things together. See yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I would say spontaneity, maybe you could say the new, like that God says, let's do something new from time to time, right? Yeah. They sang a new song in heaven. Uh, so there was something about newness that's connected to creativity. Yes, I would, I would agree with that. Um, and, uh, of course, you could say goodness. We have the potential for goodness. We also sometimes aren't good. But we have a moral nature, right? We could say that we can assess, <clears throat> in some sense, we can assess a situation and say, this is good. And so in a way, we're standing outside of it. Right? So again, a machine fundamentally doesn't assess, it just does what it was designed to do. But uh, a moral nature is sort of the ability to step outside and to say, this is good or this is bad, I'm sort of, uh, I'm relating to it rather than being it uh, or being tied to it somehow. Yes. Uh, this actually, we're going to talk about the Trinity in a future week, but um, the Trinity actually says that God is relational from all eternity, that he didn't just become relational when people started to exist, that he actually had a relational nature of love within himself even before people were around, uh, and that it's intrinsic to who he is. How about some ways that we're, uh, we would say we're different from God? We're not eternal. Uh, we can move into the future eternally, but we are not, we did not exist forever. Yeah. So, um, what do I say here? I say not eternal. Okay. We also can't just create uh, out of nothing, right? I mean, so um, God always exists, but creation does not always exist. And so God, like we say, is creative. We're always using some stuff to create some other stuff, whereas God creates the stuff itself. Right? Um, so, in a way, this is part of the reason why it's difficult to think about God, because there is much about him which is inaccessible. And so we can never have a sense in which we pin down God, you know, like a scientific experiment, and say we understand all there is to know about God, and there's nothing more to be said. Um, you know, there's so much outside of us, you know, so again, you know, creation, uh, infinity, we're not infinite, um, God is infinite in his knowledge, and so on. Um, yeah, so because of that, uh, there are some aspects of God that we can just never know. Uh, and um, we can never see him truly as he is, because we simply can't comprehend it. And so, in, in you know, sometimes I feel like in Christian theology, we brush past that mystery side. You know, like we're so good at doing theology because of things that we do know, we forget there's a ton that we don't know and can never know. Even in heaven, for an eternity, you will never plumb the depths of everything that God knows, which is a striking thought to think about. Like you can literally be in heaven forever and not know everything that God knows or know everything there is to know about God. Um, uh, and so, you know, I think sometimes we we focus so much on the stuff that we do know that we forget there's a lot we don't know. I have a question. Yeah. So, and I 
Yeah. Their statements the Bible say we will see him face to face and we will be like him. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so in some sense you could say right now we're in a situation where there's actually a barrier to prevent us from knowing. So even you know, so even if we wanted to know everything about God and we have pure hearts, there would be a barrier that actually stops us from knowing uh, uh, many things about God. Uh, in heaven you could say there would be no barrier other than that simply being finite and God being infinite like we'll never get to the end of it, uh, of knowing him. But there's actually, and we'll talk about this in future lessons too, there's actually God keeping a wall of separation between us in some ways, even apart from the fact that he's infinite, there's also sin that keeps us from knowing him uh, fully in this life. And that will be removed. But it does not say we will ever actually become God. And I think this is actually a crucial difference with some other religions, because some religions will say, like, we actually become God in eternity. And even in eternity, we will never be God. We'll be more like him, uh, and there will not be a wall of separation, but we will never actually be God. Uh, and that's actually a, a pretty crucial. So you could say there is a fundamental uh, creation-creator difference that will never go away, that God is fundamentally different from his creation, again, because he's outside the box. You know, um, as I was showing before, you know, that there's us in the box, and God is outside the box, and we cannot reach outside the box to make ourselves God. Yes? Yeah. only this difference, is that really only because of sin, because at the same time, then, God's created us in his likeness, yes. how much of his likeness do we have? Right. Yeah, so um, this is the tension that we have, is that we're saying that God is like us in some ways, and yet unlike us in other ways. And this is where I want to get to this idea of the lesser to the greater. Okay, I put this down before and then I erase it. Um, and I think C.S. Lewis is a great author on this. Um, what we're basically saying is God can certainly be greater than, than us in many ways, but he cannot be less than us. Okay, he, uh, and so um, this gets back to the thing about getting something out of nothing. right? So on the one hand, we can say, can nothing generate something? And we say, well, no, because nothing is nothing. Okay. In the same way, you could say, can something... Um, which is fundamentally on one plane generate something in another plane. Okay, so for instance, can an unconscious uh, uh, physical world create consciousness? Okay. Um, okay. Can um, yeah, because we are conscious. Okay, and we have intentionality. Um, so these worldviews that say that the universe is fundamentally machine-like are essentially arguing that the lesser can generate the greater. They're saying that something fundamentally unconscious can generate something which is conscious. Go ahead. There's a principle that, that um, I always attribute to being some kind of evidence of God's creativity, but um, non-religious 
and yield product that's greater than the sum of the parts. So something, right. is, something is created by combining elements, by combining. Right, right. So this basically is, I would say, the fundamental uh, question of debate between sort of those who believe in God and those who don't. Is that, yeah. So there are lots of, you know, in the physics world, there's a lot of processes that are like what you're talking about, where people will argue, yes, the lesser can generate the greater, um, because, well, um, you could mix things together and get a chemical reaction and get something new that wasn't there before, or things like that. Um, and so, in a sense, you could say, okay, um, Okay, so Dan used the word synergy. Um, there's theories about a conscious universe. Right. The Earth's conscious universe. Right. So, um, yeah, so there are some worldviews that are not Christian that will say that the ground of all being is conscious, and in that they would agree with Christians. Okay? So then we move to a different step. We say, well, our disagreement with them is not about whether there's consciousness. The, the question is, uh, has that consciousness spoken to us? All right, okay. But um, we would agree with them that the ground of all being is conscious uh, and, and has intention. Uh, but the machine-like people, the atheists, uh, or even the people who like the Star Wars Force and Buddhism and so on, would say that it's fundamentally unconscious and impersonal. And then they have to argue along the lines of what you were saying is that somehow something which is fundamentally simple and unconscious can generate consciousness. Um, now, um, part of this, I would say, is is uh, just storytelling. <laughs> okay. Um, turns out, in the physics world, this has not been shown. You know, people will make all these hand waving arguments, but like, you know, so like there was a guy who actually got the Nobel Prize in the 1970s for arguing along the following lines. Well, if you go to the beach and you see the waves washing in, you'll see a bunch of rigid lines in the sand. And so that's spontaneous emergence of something complicated. Or if you sometimes look up in the sky, you'll see rigid lines of clouds uh, that spontaneously formed. So therefore, an unconscious universe can generate people. And I'm thinking about like, wait a minute. You just made like an enormous leap. <laughs> you, know, you went from basically zero bits of information to one bit of information. You analogy, <laughs> okay? Uh, you went from something that was uniform to something that literally had one, I could describe that in one number, which is the spacing of the ridges. That's all I need is one number, okay? Uh, and now you're saying that a human with all of the complexities and consciousness that we have is generated by the same process as that. Like, that is like a just-so story. That's just like hand-waving. That's not physics. That's, you know, that's just, just pretending, okay? Gone the wrong direction yeah, in fact, we see a lot of things that erase those things on the shore. They don't last very long. They get erased all the time. So, yeah, there's a lot of erasure processes uh, as well. Yeah, yeah. So, um, in some sense, you could say it's part, partly your assessment of what you think can actually happen. But also, I think there's a philosophical principle that, to me, is the same as the principle that something cannot come from nothing, which is the greater cannot come from the lesser. Um, that you can't get a completely, you can't get life from non-life. Okay? 
you can't get consciousness from unconsciousness because these are completely new things. These are not just a variation of the previous thing. It's an utterly new thing. And so you could say you have a universe devoid of consciousness, and now something utterly new comes into being conscious. How does that happen? Um, the, the point is that if you think about this, though, it allows us to say God can be very, very different from us. Um, we're going to go about 45 minutes. What's that? Right. Well, I don't have to get through all my notes. It's okay. Uh, uh, so this, this distinction allows us to say that, yes, God can be utterly different from us, but he can't be less than us. Uh, and if, God, if we are persons, God can't be less than a person. He could be far more than a person, but he can't be less than a person. And so we might say, well, I think linear thoughts and I you know I would I forget stuff okay well God thinks even more logically than me and he never forgets stuff but he doesn't think less well than me and all these sort of Buddhist versions if you think about it they're really fundamentally saying that we're actually greater than the ground of all being the universe that even these impersonal forces and spiritual things and so on they're fundamentally people putting them above those things and say, well, these things are sort of impersonal. I, as a person, see more and know more than these impersonal forces. Because if they were personal, they would be basically a god. Uh, and that's what people want to avoid. Okay, so let's see where I'm on my notes. Um, okay, so the question is, why do we not want to believe in God? Uh, one of the fundamental problems is that nobody comes to this question neutrally. Uh, it's not just a philosophical question. Um, because if you really take it in for a minute, say, wait a minute, there is an infinite eternal being who knows everything I do and think, uh, that's a scary thought, right, to really grasp that, <laughs> okay? Um, so, the, and, and this is where, again, I feel like in some ways, many of the ancients got this better than we do, okay? Which is, if there is a God, that's a scary thought for knowing. Right? And it's why a lot of ancient religions have a lot of, you know, fear of God, you could say. You know, there's really a sense that we need to um, pay off this God somehow because this God is scary. They fundamentally recognize that this God has power over us. Now, uh, again, they have reduced God in some ways, but they're getting at a real aspect, which is, if there is a God, we're clearly not that God, and so we are in a subservient role to this God, and that's a scary thought, that there is a power over us that we cannot control, and that controls us, and not only that, that can judge us. Um, so, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the passage, but I encourage you to read Romans chapter 1 uh, in the Bible. Um, it basically says that Everybody in their heart uh, knows that God exists already. Um, so, um, uh, and in a sense, the way we know about God is we know each other. Okay, people exist. Okay, and the Bible says people are made in the image of God. And so, 
when we see people, we are seeing something about God, right? And so it's not crazy talk to say that we say, well, look, I know people exist. I know people haven't existed forever, and that people are not God, but stands to reason that the ground of all being in the universe is like people, at least in some ways, uh, and having intention and purpose and so on. And so the Bible says that that is actually our default condition, that we actually have a sense of God watching us all the time. It's just we can't escape it. And scientists have actually confirmed this. So sociologists you know, will say that every, every culture has religious belief, and every culture has sometimes called a God-shaped vacuum, and that worship is universal uh, because um, we just are naturally God, we believe in God. So even if we don't worship the Christian God, we put something else uh, in its place. Um, and it's interesting because sometimes archaeologists or sociologists, not archaeologists, anthropologists, have tried to argue, well, there's this some culture that actually has no concept of God, and they'll make this big argument and so on. And actually, what it usually turns out is that they do, but that belief in God is so sacred and holy that they will never tell outsiders about it. Uh, and so you as the anthropologist going in never hear their religious beliefs because they're not going to tell you because you are an unbeliever outsider. Uh, but then actually, in every culture and university, there is something that fits that, that void. Uh, but what, what the Romans chapter 1 says is that, that we're scared by that and we don't like that. And so we do one of two things. Uh, we either re uh, reject God and um, say, no, it's just a force, it's just uh, machines or whatever, you know, um, and we reject God's judgment, or we remake God in our own image. And that's what the Bible calls idolatry. And that is really, really common in our modern society. You know, so somebody said it's actually never been a majority atheist culture in the world, as far as we know. Uh, it actually requires a sustained intellectual effort to stay an atheist. <laughs> uh, so even in cultures where the elite become atheists, most of the rest of the culture isn't atheist and, and is very much believing in God or gods of some sort. Uh, and even those atheists will find themselves praying when they're in trouble. Uh, you know, to an unknown God and so on. It's very hard to be atheist, but it's actually really easy to be idolatrous. Um, and basically, we have a culture in which people will do theology fundamentally by saying, I could never believe in a God who would do X. I just don't think that sounds right. right? Well, what are you doing? You're basically saying, my feelings of what I think are good define what must be. You know? And you know, my first response to that is, says who, who made you the creator of the universe? So like, you, you don't get to define who God is. God is who he is. And you can find out or, or not. But we don't get to vote on how to make God. <laughs> okay? Idolatry fundamentally is saying, I'm going to remake God to be the way I want him to be in a sort of a manageable way so that I can control him and he's not scary anymore. Uh, and even in places where you have these sort of like scary-looking idols, 
with their tongue sticking out and fire breathing and so on, they're still sort of manageable because they're finite. And you can pay them off with giving them these certain things. Uh, and they're just like a person who you can kind of avoid or go to see, but they don't like see everything that you do all the time. Uh, but we live in a culture where most people do theology by simply dreaming up what I think God should be like. And that's the way he is. That's the way he must be. Uh, and either you're saying, well, there really isn't a God, so we're all just pretending, so I might as well pretend whatever I want. Okay. Or you're saying, I am so darn important that my feelings get to define the way the universe must be. I mean, there's, that's, idolatry basically says one of those two things. Uh, um, because you're fundamentally not saying, I want to find out what's real that's outside me, whether I like it or not. You know, so I mean, think about it, if we did this in other spheres. Like, well, I don't like nuclear bombs. I don't like the idea that nuclear reactions exist. So I don't think that those laws of physics are true. Says who? I mean, you don't get to vote. <laughs> it is what it is, right? You don't get to vote on whether nuclear fusion is possible. Uh, it is. You know, and there's a fundamentally egotistical center of saying, I want to define God the way I want him to be. And if he isn't the way I like, then I'm going to punish him by not believing in him. You, know, um, you don't get to do that with physics. You don't get to do that with jumping off of cliffs. You know, like, I don't think it's nice that people die when they jump off cliffs. I would like a world in which people can levitate. Well, that's great, but the world that you actually live in isn't like that. Right? You don't get to define the world that you were created in. Right? Uh, and yet we so often try to do that. We try to make God to be what we want him to be. And maybe we try to do that with physics, too. Maybe some people are like, I don't believe in that physics. Because it, it implies that my machine won't work or something. Um, so, the Romans 1 basically um, concludes that actually we turn away from God out of suppression. Okay? That we don't like the idea of God judging us, and so we reinvent Him uh, in various ways to be less threatening. <coughs> so then, this is where uh, the work of the Holy Spirit comes in. Um, we can say the fundamental work of the Spirit is to open our eyes. So, basically, what the, the Bible is teaching is that um, we intrinsically know God is there. We feel threatened by that. We tune him out. And the Holy Spirit allows us to open our eyes to see what we always knew but we were afraid to look at, which is that God is there. And so it's not as though people are blind and knowing nothing about God. And then, you know, they get new information that the Spirit brings to them. But it's rather opening your eyes to what you already were tuning out uh, before. Uh, and so um, <clears throat> the Spirit is necessary because of our hard hearts that we tend to stand against God. And the Spirit has to soften our heart to say, okay, I think there really is a God. But that is a scary thought, but I'm still willing to go there. And that has to require a heart change that we're not hardened against God uh, in our hearts uh, to suppress that knowledge.
I guess it's sometimes called repression, right? Psychologists use the term repression, right? That I'm going to repress bad things. So the classic example is like, you know, somebody who's been in a horrible car accident and they literally um, have blocked it out so that they have they never think about it. Uh, and it's not just because they actually lost those memories, but because they've actually repressed those memories. Uh, but what can happen is they still lead a very unhealthy life because this thing is just below the surface and it keeps like pressing on them, but they're repressing it in denial. They don't want to remember that. And our relationship to God, without the word of the Holy Spirit, is sort of like that, that we kind of constantly know God is there and yet repress and turn away because we don't want the guilt feelings that, that come from believing in him. All right, let me pause there and... Um, uh, I have about five minutes left here, but let me take your reactions or thoughts to any of that. So, it's all about the psychology. So, like, it's kind of interesting that I read a book that said that some of the, a lot of the, uh, um, the victims are like child abuse. So, mm-hmm. never what happens to them. Yeah. Yeah, no, that is a really common experience that things happen to children that are traumatic. <clears throat> and then oftentimes they suppress those things and repress them. They still have an effect on that person, but they never actually think that. And, and the analogy is sort of a good one in that actually help comes when they actually face those things. A lot of times they move through it by saying, let me deal with reality. It's very painful. <clears throat> and that's basically what the gospel says is, yes, um, we have reason to be afraid of God, but let's face that and say, well, can we move through that? You know, do we always continually need to be afraid of God, or is there a way to be reconciled to God? But without a hope of moving through to reconciliation with God, we would tend to want to just repress and suppress. So I'm not going to do this whole thing about the Bible that I have here. I'll just pick it up next week. But uh, let me just say. Given everything that I've said now, basically, the premise is two things. <coughs> uh, the first thing is to know God, okay, has to be from God to us. The motion has to be from God telling us about himself. Because he's outside the box, okay? So we can't, and there's a Bible verse like this, is who can go up to heaven and bring God down? You know, and you know, a modern analogy might be you know, like we like to do science where we get to take the subject matter and pin it down and examine it. <clears throat> we cannot do that to something that created us. Right? We can't take God and put him under a microscope. So we can only take what he tells us about himself and then try to understand that uh, and make sense of it. Uh, and so for the Christian worldview, this is basically by definition the Bible. Okay, a record of what God has told to us. <clears throat> and um, the philosophical stuff that I think is very important because it basically, everything I said before gives us the basis that it is possible for God to speak. Right? All right now, um, if God is a person, he can communicate. That's an aspect of what it means to be a person. And we can say he's more than a person, but he's not less than a person. So he clearly has the ability to speak. Now, he may refrain. He may say, I'm not going to tell you this or that. And in fact, as I said, he clearly has not told us everything there is to know about him because that's an infinite set. <laughs> right? So 
he has not and will not tell us everything there is to know, but actually we really wouldn't know that we knew anything about him unless he took the initiative to tell us, to communicate it to us. And we could say, well, at one level, he's already told us, and Romans 1 says, he's already told us some things about himself just from the way things are made. Like just from the way people are, we can say God is not less than a person. Right? And actually the way rocks are, we can say there's some aspects of rocks that reflect the nature of God. Right? We could say there's actually, the, uh, I mean, I'm a solid state physicist, so I can tell you all about rocks. But, you know, if you bang on them, they can resonate, you know, and, and they can use it, you know, and there's interesting things that can happen, uh, even with rocks. Uh, but sometimes when people approach the Bible, they sort of approach things backwards, and it's like, well, I'm not going to believe in God unless I conclude that the Bible is uh, perfectly true, and then the Bible teaches me that God exists. All right? That's actually backwards, because I would say we first assess the question, which Romans 1 says we already know in our hearts, does God exist? And then given the existence of God, you say, is it possible and is it likely that this God would actually communicate? All right? um, and so if we answer that yes, then we're in the position of saying, well, what are the candidates for that communication? Like, what are my options? All right? you know, who has claimed to speak for God? Who has, who's, who's presenting me with purported information from God? And so that's where we start to move toward the Bible. And I'm going to pump that till next week and just say that basically we come at the Bible saying clearly God is able to speak. Uh, and clearly God cannot be less than us and be unable to communicate. So now the question is, uh, which of many, if any, of these options are candidates for God actually speaking to us in that way? Uh, and of course, Christians would conclude the Bible is uh, that communication. Uh, but we do that on the basis of saying, well, we live in a universe that we clearly know there are people that communicate. And so the communication is not some crazy thing. Uh, we know it exists and that people do it. And that yet we didn't create ourselves. So I'm going to um, conclude with that, but let's do some questions before I, like, before I close us. So what do you feel when people say they don't believe in absolute anything relative? They don't believe in truth at all, you're saying? They, they only believe in relative truth. What is possible? How do you possible? Yeah, okay, so that's a very good point, actually. Everything that I've done this morning, or it's, it's noon, <laughs> has been on the premise that people are thinking rationally. Okay? Um, I guess you could say in that denial of God, there's a third option. So like one option I would say is just to reject God. Another option is to recreate it. It's like the third option is just not think at all. Right? Just to be irrational and say, I just don't like to think about things. I don't like the idea of truth at all. Um, the only thing I would say to that is, no, because of who we are, nobody is able to actually do that self-consistently. Like, every one of those people who is sort of a mystic who doesn't believe in truth, well, in parts of their life, really insists on truth. You know? So, like, even the statement, there is no such thing as absolute truth, is a statement. And they're asserting that very confidently as though it was true. <laughs> right? So, to be self-consistent, they would have to say, um, you know, truth might or might not exist, but it, I might be totally wrong, and actually there could be absolute truth, <laughs> right? Um, but also, even at a much more mundane level, like 
if somebody goes to the grocery store and they get butter and they take it to the counter and it's set on the label a dollar thirty-nine or whatever, and the cashier says that'll be three fifty. They say, what do you mean? It says $1.39. They will not accept it. The cashier said, well, truth is relative. And I just made up the price on the spot because that's my truth. Like, they don't accept that, right? I mean, everybody insists on truth where they want it to be, you know, fixed. Uh, and they just use it essentially as a mechanism for denying the things they don't want to believe. But the things they want to believe, they can be very insistent on. So part of it is, and actually this goes all the way back to Aristotle, who was a theist but not a... Christian, saying you know that you you can't actually live non-logically because you always end up using logic to argue against logic because to argue itself is to use logic uh, and but what we do have is certainly is the capacity to sometimes be irrational and to throw out the things we don't like even while acting logically in, in other uh, areas of our lives. We'll just write off that part. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I think um, so. When I say there is something that I think that is a legitimate part of that, which is we could say and this is actually Romans two, which I also encourage you to read um, there. Um, so on the one hand, we have God uh, speaking to us. Okay, we'll call that revelation. Okay. Uh, and then we also have in our hearts uh, what we can call conscience. Uh, an innate sense of right and wrong. Okay. Now, our conscience is precisely what leads us to fear God because we we have a sense I've done something that God would be mad at. Okay, and uh, that um, is an inner sense that Romans one and two were talking about. Um, but I think there is a, a legitimate sense in which we can say, my conscience tells me what is right and wrong. Uh, and if somebody is telling me from revelation that God did or does something that my conscience seems to tell me is evil, there's a contradiction, there's a disconnect. Because we would say God created the conscience. God created uh, um, our hearts. Uh, and so it's not totally illegitimate to say, if this in my conscience feels utterly wrong, and you're telling me God does this, something is not matching. Okay. Um, what I would say is, in that situation, uh, we have to be very careful before just going with our heart in every case, because our, car, our hearts can deceive us. On the other hand, I don't think we should just lightly dismiss our conscience either. Like, we should say, okay, if that seems really wrong to me, then something needs to be resolved. Uh, and actually, I remember, and I'll finish with this, uh, R.C. talked about reading the Bible, and he was saying one of the best things you can do, like what we, the way we, what we typically do, we read through the Bible and we skip over all the parts we don't like. 
And he was saying the best thing you do is actually read it and circle all the parts you don't like and then go back and focus just on them. Okay, because that's the parts where you need to grow and learn about God. And say, okay, if this is jarring to me, what does that say about my culture or my sense of right and wrong? Like, or maybe I just don't understand the Bible and I'm reading it wrong. But in any case, I'm going to learn something by resolving that tension between basically my inner conscience and what I, what I see in the Bible. So I, I would not want to dismiss conscience altogether. Uh, but I do feel sometimes feel Christians in agreement with what you're saying just take the easy way out, just say, well, let's just skip those parts of the Bible. I just don't like those parts, and so let's just kind of ignore those. I don't think that's an option for the Christian self consistently, but again, we all, you know, tell us that our hearts are idol makers, right? You know, like we, we tend to want to make God in our own image. And even Christians will do that all the time. And I think for sake of time, and because there's a really great picnic waiting for us, uh, I should end it here. Um, somebody want to volunteer to close us in prayer? Someone would like to close us in prayer? Amen.